Can we train the brain in ways that correct or compensate for injuries or impairments? Can we change our brain in ways that contribute to its rejuvenation as we grow older? To what extent can the brain heal itself with our guidance? Join us on a journey across the frontiers of neuroscience, psychology, and neurology as we explore the immense power of the Brain Fitness Program. This is an excerpt from the Brain Fitness DVD of the Brain Fitness Gym Software and DVD Package. This and other gifts from our recent marathon are available to you online at kpfa.org. In addition to donating to support KPFA online, you can also find out information about your favorite shows, discover new ones, and even subscribe to the KPFA newsletter so you can stay in the know about the latest happenings here at KPFA. Your online support helps KPFA be there for you in the future. Check out the various gifts available to you for a donation. KPFA is here because of support from listeners like you. Visit kpfa.org today. This is KPFA or KPFB Berkeley or KFCF Fresno. It's 3.01. Time now for Stone's Throw on Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Stay tuned. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money. Every Friday, happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture. Drop the shadow out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today is March the 11th, 2008, marching forward here. Ah, ha, 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 yes, sides of March coming up. Look out, Caesar. Okay, then comes St. Patrick's Day. Oh, all that Irish nonsense. Oh, well, I'll save that for another day. I'm not so interested in that today as I am in the fact that it is International Woman's Month. That's what we get for March. <laughs> oh, I don't know what's the use of all these special months and days, but we must make use of what we can. I have here in front of me a list of so many women that it would take me the whole half hour to read them to you. So I'm going to let that go. What have I got? Top of the top of the pile here is the fifth annual Rachel Corey Memorial. That's coming up on the 16th. That's coming up Sunday at 7 o'clock this evening of music, poetry, and activism. And there's a whole list of the people who are performing and speaking. This is a benefit for the International Solidarity Movement, and it's at the Intertribal Friendship House in Oakland, California. Now, where do you find the address for that? Let's see. Uh, it's on International Boulevard, 523 International Boulevard at 5th Avenue in Oakland. Get off at the Lake Merritt Bart. No one turned away. Donation $10, etc., etc., etc. Okay. 
We all know about the life of Rachel Corey, who was killed on March 16th, 16 March 2003, by the Israeli occupation forces with a weaponized caterpillar bulldozer as she nonviolently resisted the illegal demolition of a family home in Palestine. Stand in, it says, stand in solidarity with Palestinians and all indigenous peoples struggling against ethnic cleansing and oppression and for social justice everywhere. I'll have some of that. I'll have some of that international social justice. International solidarity movement, uh, Ah, me, I mustn't be so, I mustn't be so dragged down this, uh, doomsday scenario this week was lightened considerably by a recent sex scandal in New York. Yes, the governor of New York (laughs) stepped in some very deep yogurt and (laughs) it's no good laughing at these things, but I am always filled with a sense of relief when there's a sex scandal. Some kind of break from the bloody horrors of the wars and so forth. Actually, Elliot Spitzer, this silly man, it seems to me this is a sting operation. He stepped on some very big toes there on Wall Street. And it has always been my impression that a sex scandal, if you dig deep enough, has behind it a sting operation. We don't know what will happen and we don't know... uh, we don't know who profits, who benefits. Uh, but, well, let's see. We'll have a black governor in New York. That might be interesting. Uh, check it out. I went to my bookshelf last night and found the wonderful little play about Rachel Corey. And I went through it again. Uh, it's a surprisingly rich document, uh, Those of you who are familiar with English uh, movie actors know a guy called Alan Rickman. And he put this together, the writings of Rachel Corey, and produced this play at the Royal Court Theater. Now, what I keep wondering as I look it over is, why is it not playing in every high school here in the United States? Uh... Produced with the kind permission of Rachel Corey's family. First performance at the Royal Court Sherwood Theatre, April 2005. And so forth and so on. Um, And Alan Rickman's the one who edited and directed this. Uh, I'm so interested in, yes, how these things come about... uh, I suppose if we sent a copy of the play to every English teacher, there aren't many drama teachers left in the U.S., uh, in every high school in the U.S., uh, it might bear fruit. Uh, let me read you just just a little scrap. I have read from this before, and uh, you remember Rachel was 23, and I keep switching from her story, the story of one activist, um, poet, prophet, radical, martyr, one young girl in America. I switch from that to 
a big fat biography that I'm reading of Benazir Bhutto, the other end of the telescope. Benazir has come out with a big book. Uh, it was just finished, um, actually the morning before she was assassinated. It's called Reconciliation. I sent away for ten copies. Maybe we can give it away during the next marathon. But Benazir Bhutto, Reconciliation, Islam, Democracy, and the West. There you have the story of, you know, a world leader. And she and Rachel Corey pretty much. <laughs> they are, of course, different. And yet, and yet. Uh, does it Diane de Prima, the poet, says, it takes everyone working in his or her own way to move the thing an inch, you know. Everyone pushing from every direction. Uh, Rachel Corey was born in Olympia, Washington, on April the 10th, 1979. Before completing her studies at the Evergreen State College in Olympia, she joined other foreign nationals working for the International Solidarity Movement in Gaza on January 25th, 2003. And the text of this play was edited from her journals and her emails. A child and a poet. She writes, Every morning I wake up in my red bedroom. It seemed like genius when I painted it. <laughs> the set for this scene is a bedroom with books everywhere. Rachel lying on top of it all. These days it looks more and more like carnage. I blink for a minute. I get ready to write down some dreams. Or a page in my diary. Or draw some very important maps. And then the ceiling tries to devour me. I wiggle around under my comforter trying to find a ballpoint, a Crayola, anything fast. I can hear the ceiling spit and smash, gnash above me, waiting for me to look. <laughs> because if I look, it can eat me, and I struggle for some socks and some boxers so I can make a run for it. But I haven't done the laundry in a month, and the other girl who lives in my room when I'm not here, the bad one who tends the garden of dirty cups and throws all the clothes around and tips over the ashtrays, the bad other girl. She hid all my pens while I was sleeping. And I try. I try to look at my fingers. I try to look at the floor with all the fashion magazines left by the bad other girl. I tried to find one pen, just one pen, but I can't imagine where any pens might be. And trying to imagine, I get off guard for a minute, and my eyes roll upward towards the sky. And I'm effed now, I'm effed, because there is no sky. There is that ceiling up there, and it has me now, because I'm looking at it. And it's going to rip me to pieces. She got that right. I go on just a little longer with Rachel's journal. 
The actress sits and faces us. She says, I am a creator of intricately decorated bedrooms. Each time I move, I spend weeks painting, gluing things to my walls, choosing the precise pictures of goddesses and art postcards. This is a labor of love, and I become completely immersed in it. I wonder why I didn't notice the awfulness of my room before. I am inside a terrifying mirror. I glued things to the wall. My God, I glued things to my wall. She goes on, touching the pictures, picking up the books. The question is always where to start the story. That's the first question. Trying to find a beginning, trying to impose order on the great psychotic fast-forward merry-go-round. And trying to impose order is the first step toward ending up in a park somewhere painted blue, singing row, row, row your boat to an audience of saggy-lipped junkies and business people munching out bran muffins. That's how this story ends, good buddy. So if you are concerned with the logic and sequence of things and the crescendo of suspense up to a good shocker of an ending, you'll best be getting back to your video game and your amassing wealth. Leave the meaningless details to the poets and the photographers. And they are all Meaningless details, my friends. Rachel finds a journal. She turns the pages. 1991, my name is Rachel Corey. I am 12 years old. Ah, I was born to my mother and father, Craig and Cindy Corey. I have a brother, Chris, a sister, Sarah and a really old cat named Phoebe. I grew. I learned to spell cat. I learned to read little books. When I was five, I discovered boys, which made my life a little more difficult. Just, just a little, but a lot more interesting. In second grade, there were classroom rules hanging from the ceiling... The only one I can remember now seems like it would be a good rule for life. Everyone must feel safe. Safe to be themselves. Physically safe. Safe to say what they think. Just safe. That's the best rule I can think of. Now I am in middle school. I guess I've grown up a little. It's all relative anyway. Nine years is as long as forty years, depending on how long you've lived. I stole that from my dad. Sometimes I think my dad is the wisest person in the world. You understand none of this is really true, because what I wrote today is true, but you'll read it by tomorrow, 
or the next day, and my whole life will be different. Is that how life is? A new draft for every day. A new view for each hour. <laughs> My footnote here is, as indeed existentialists never finish their books. <laughs> the movement of life is too fast, yes. Rachel goes on to write, When I graduated fifth grade, we had a lot of questions for our yearbook. One of them was, What do you want to be when you grow up? Everyone wrote something like doctor or astronaut or Spider-Man. And then you turned the page and there was my five-paragraph manifesto on the million things I wanted to be from wandering poet to first woman president. That was real cute in fifth grade. But when it's ten years later and I'm a junior in college and I still don't have the conviction to cross Spider-Man off my list, well, you can imagine it gets a little nerve-wracking. My mother used to walk with me to the bottom of the hill to wait for the carpool. I was nervous that I would do it wrong. I remember, or maybe I invent, that occasionally we decided on the way that I wasn't going to school. We stole time that way. She took me to lunch. We went to bookstores in Seattle. She bought me books on love and delinquency. And although she never said it straight out, I'm sure she was hoping I'd become a bank robber. My mother would never admit it, but she wanted me exactly how I turned out. Scattered and deviant and too loud. <laughs> Rachel changes her clothes. I'm building the world myself. I'm putting new hats on everybody one by one before I go out. Ah, oh, so wrinkled I am, I have to grab the great big flaccid flaps of my eyebrows and lift them off my cheekbones in order to see. Before I go out, I'm going to have people in tutus, cops wearing sombreros, stockbrokers with Viking hats, priests with panties on their heads. In the world I'm building, everybody shouts hello to everybody else from their car windows. People have speakers attached to their chests that pour out music so you can tell from a distance what mood they're in. And they won't be too chicken to get naked when the rain comes. The first ladies carry handcuffs and bull whips, and presidents wear metal collars. Big metal collars with tight leashes. <laughs> Rachel emerges barefoot. 
Okay, I'm Rachel. Sometimes I wear ripped blue jeans. Sometimes I wear polyester. Sometimes I take off all my clothes and swim naked at the beach. I don't believe in fate, but my astrological sign is Aries, the ram. And my sign on the Chinese zodiac is the sheep. And the name Rachel means sheep. But I've got a fire in my belly. It used to be such a big, love blazing fire that I couldn't hear anybody else over it. So I talked a lot, and I didn't listen too much. Then I went to middle school, where you got to be cool, you got to be strong and tough. And I tried real hard to be cool, but luckily, luckily, I happened to get a free trip to Russia. And I saw another country for the first time. In the streets and the alleys, it was an obstacle course of garbage and mud and graffiti. There was coal dust on the snow. Everything was dirty. And they always said to us, How do you like our dirty city? Oh, but it was so pretty with the little lights in the windows and the red dusk light on the buildings. It was flawed, dirty, broken, and gorgeous. I looked backwards across the Pacific Ocean, and from that distance some things back here in Olympia, Washington, USA, seemed a little weird and disconcerting. But I was awake in Russia. I was awake for the first time with bug eyes and a grin. On the flight home from Anchorage to Seattle, everything was dark. Then the sun began to rise, the water was shining, and I realized we were flying over Puget Sound. Soon we could see islands in that water, evergreen trees on those islands, and I, I began to sob. I sobbed in all that radiance, in the midst of the most glorious sunrise I'd ever seen, because it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to make me glad to be home. Maybe it was finally the trees who told me to stay, or maybe going to school in my hometown was just the path of least resistance. Maybe going to Evergreen State College was just the best way to be different from my economics major, high achiever, khaki and high heels, Yaley corporate sister and brother. I don't know why I stayed, but one day I knew I had to. It was the same day I decided to be an artist and a writer, and I didn't give an S if I was mediocre, and I didn't give an S if I starved to death, and I didn't give an S if my whole damned high school turned and pointed and laughed in my face. I was finally awake, forever and ever.
The next section finds Rachel Corey in Gaza. And it's all very moving. As you know, Rachel Corey died uh, on that hill. <laughs> she says, when I leave, I'll leave laughing. A TV set at the end of the play shows a recording of the transcript of an eyewitness account. Uh, that account was by Tom Dale. It is uh, a record of Rachel Corey's death on March 16th, 2003. Rachel walked to place herself in between the home and the bulldozer. As the bulldozer turned towards them, it had about 20 meters or 10 seconds clear time directly with her in its view to see where she was. It continued toward her at some pace with a mound of earth building up in front of it. As the mound of earth reached Rachel, she obviously felt that in order to keep her balance, to keep her footing, she had to climb onto this mound of earth to prevent being overwhelmed by it. When she did this, it put her head and shoulders clearly above the top of the bulldozer blade and therefore clearly in the view of the bulldozer driver. So he knew absolutely that she was there. She falls down the mound of earth and out of sight of the driver. So he has essentially pushed her forward down the mound of earth. Then she starts to slide and then you see one... Then both of her feet disappear, and he simply continued until she was, or the place where she had been, was directly beneath the cockpit of the bulldozer. They waited a few seconds and then withdrew, leaving his scoop on the ground. Only later, when it was much clear of her body, did it raise its scoop. I ran for an ambulance. She was gasping, and her face was covered in blood, with a gash cutting her face from lip to cheek. She was showing signs of brain hemorrhaging. She died in the ambulance a few minutes later. The memorial for Rachel Corey is this Sunday. I'm looking here for the, the blurb. Rachel Corey Memorial Sunday the 16th of March at 7 p.m. And it's at the Intertribal Friendship House in Oakland. Music, poetry, activism, all kinds of singing and dancing and celebration. Celebrating the life of Rachel Corey. Um, Oh, too many people to tell you about, but the choirs, performers, yes, head rush. Check it out. If you want to, you can um, call. Contact information is in the Five and Dime area code, 510-236-4250. Once again, yes, in the Five and Dime area code, 510 510- Call 236-4250 and you can get information about the memorial this Sunday at 7 o'clock for Rachel Corey. Now, 
Next time I want to read to you from Benazir Bhutto's biography, autobiography, that she finished just before she was slain or assassinated. I think you can find it. It's in hardback. Uh, Madeleine Albright says that it's impossible to understand today's world without knowing Pakistan. And this courageous woman, tragically killed, speaks to us of reconciliation. We owe it to her and to ourselves to listen to her, to comprehend and act. Reconciliation, that'll be the day. Let us pray. This has been Jennifer Stone. Be back on the air Thursday morning, 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. Out of Dance Brigade presents A Storm of Roses, Women Against War, with Holly Near, Farron, Melanie Damore, Mary Watkins, Dance Brigade, and others, to protest the fifth anniversary of the Iraq War, honoring anti-war activist Cindy Sheehan, Code Pink, Barbara Lee, Carol Migdon, and Grandmothers Against the War, March 14th at the Herbst Theater in San Francisco. For tickets, call City Box Office at 415-392-4400. That's 415-392-4400. This event benefits Dance Brigade's Women Against War. KPFA 94.1 in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, and 88.1 KFCF in Fresno.